Welcome to the Hell of a Catholic Podcast. Uh, this is Father Josh Allen, chaplain at Georgia Tech. I'm T.J. Capaldi, seminarian for the Archdiocese of Atlanta and uh, pastoral lackey emeritus. I am Ben Thompson, and I am a seminarian for uh, the Archdiocese of Atlanta as well. So, you know, we've said before, we don't, uh, you've heard me say this many times, we tend to record podcasts in like spurts. So record two, three, four, sometimes at one time, and then they get released whenever Kyle decides to come into work um, and uh, and do something uh, for the no money that he's being paid. Um, so I don't know if this one is going to be released before or after the one we just recorded, uh, but Ben Thompson, seminarian for Atlanta, and uh, we just we just recorded what I thought was a really interesting podcast on uh, some comments that Cardinal Seurat made. And we started having a conversation, and Ben started talking about some very interesting things. And he made a claim that I found very intriguing. <laughs> and the claim was something along the lines of he had never encountered a person who, when they were presented with St. Anselm's theory of atonement, that they were their mind was not blown. Did if they I hadn't heard it before, yes. If they had not heard it, before. if they had not heard if the had, basic listen, ideas, there's before. no layperson that's heard Saint Anselm's theory. Of <laughs> well, yeah, that's generally. True. I mean, I would say there's probably maybe five percent of priests that have heard it. That would be or if they heard it, they were sleeping that day in soteriology. <laughs> it's right? it's basically dominated the theory of atonement since uh, he. I mean, it ha- it's dominated the theory of atonement, but the theory of atonement itself is not really the dominant theory. Oh, I'm going to stop so. you guys right there because this is already like really, uh, you know, esoteric. So you're going to have to bring it down to okay. earth at some okay. point. Right. So, so I asked, atonement. I asked. What is atonement? Well, hold on, hold on. Before we get to that, right? Because you made some other claims about it. So we got <laughs> to make sure we get out before we even talk about all on my shoulders for this one it seems like right so uh first of all i asked tj you know because i said hey we can do a podcast on this but you got to talk about it i studied this i remember in for my license and i had to do a question on it in my oral exam uh for my final license and i i I think i know the theory um but when he made the claim that i've never met anybody that's not blown away that's true when they hear it that's impressive. And then he made another claim about your own conversion. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, my conversion uh, into the Catholic faith, I kind of came from atheism, moved to deism, and eventually came to the Catholic faith. But in between that So stage, atheism is I don't believe in God at all. Correct. Deism is I believe in God, but not a specific sort of particular faith. Correct. A, a, loose, higher, a, a higher power. Right. A loose, I'm spiritual, yeah, but exactly. not religious exactly. sort of thing. Yeah. So moving between that stage, the deism, the sort of I'm spiritual but not religious, and Catholicism, straight up Catholicism, I read the Gospels and became somewhat convinced of this person of Christ or that there was truth found in this person of Christ. But it probably wasn't until I read St. Anselm of Canterbury's Cure Deus Homo, uh, that title's Latin, it basically means why God, why the God-man or why God became man, uh, name of one of his famous works. Until I read that work from St. Anselm, I had not really been convinced completely of Christianity. And that is what really convinced me, uh, convinced my reason or settled my reason on the faith that I was already obtaining. So I would like a show of hands among the three people listening to our podcast, and we'll include the people except for Ben. <laughs> Who has ever been converted by St. Anselm? 
Looks like zero. Now you look around the entire <laughs> world. He's my page. Nobody's hand is up. <laughs> ah, right? Nobody's hand is up. This is unfortunate. So I am intrigued by this. Okay. So we are going to ask them to present <laughs> to us, and I, I'm not even going to pick at him. Present to us the theory of atonement in a way that is going to blow the minds of people who have never heard it. All right, let's do this. There's a lot on my shoulders, but I think this can be done. St. Anselm, pray for us. <laughs> uh, so basically, let's, let's basically discuss an idea of uh, why Christ is needed, is what, what Anselm intended to teach us through the use of reason in his arguments made in Cure Deus Homo, why God became man. So okay, before you, I'm gonna, I'm only gonna ask you to help flesh out stuff. So okay. When you say why Christ was needed, what do you mean by that? Why Christ was needed for mankind's salvation and God to be just. Okay. So, so the question is, how can how can God's justice meet with God's mercy without a logical contradiction? How can mercy be also just basically is what Anselm was asking the question of and so the idea is given that you think God is merciful to men but God is also just Anselm says St. Anselm says Christ is needed he is logically needed and if you don't in order have for mercy and justice to coexist in God without a contradiction without in a terms. contradiction so okay. if, if justice tell me how, how would the contradiction work so the, contradiction. the contradiction would be something like this so justice means basically giving somebody what they are due mercy means letting somebody off despite being due some punishment so for instance this would be a basic example like in I'm not sure I would agree with your definition of mercy but Okay. How about okay, giving somebody something that they're not due? Giving somebody, yeah, that that right, would so be. Now we've got similar language, but but at the same actually, time, that would include positive charity too. At, at the same time, mercy in that case could be uh, a sort of bad injustice as well. You could be punishing something, somebody, and that we wouldn't call that mercy. It would be something that they aren't due because maybe they didn't do the crime, but you're punishing them anyway, we still wouldn't call it mercy. Yeah, how about giving somebody something good that they're not due? There we go. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right. So how can those two things be reconcilable? It would seem that if we were due eternal punishment, for instance, and God did not give us internal, eternal punishment, then he would not be being just. By not giving us the punishment, God would be an unjust God to be merciful to us. So Anselm tries to address that question and says, if you're going to have both of those qualities in God, mercy and justice, Christ is absolutely logically needed. And that if you don't have that, the idea of God being just and merciful, like in perhaps other religions, that would be like a four-sided triangle. It would be something you couldn't even conceive. It wouldn't make any sense. TJ, so, how, how are you doing with this, TJ? I'm following. Okay. <laughs> I see that there's a problem with the mercy and justice thing. What I see is that there is a... I'm just an observer over here. I don't know anything about this. That, yes, if God... It seems like if God gave mercy, then he might be defying justice. So I do need kind of an answer for that. Because justice seems to give people punishments in accord with the things that they've done wrong. But mercy does something else. So what what do, yeah. we, what do we say about that if God is both? So, yeah. 
So the first question you need to ask is, why would you need salvation in the first place? Why, why is men would we need salvation? Well, given that you... So Anselm's basically addressing people who already believe in God. There's some evidence, I think, to even think he's addressing the Muslims at this point and trying to make an argument to the Muslims for the Christian faith. I think most people are most people who listen to our podcast probably believe in probably at least when they started (laughs) at least when they started I thought you were so, going to say they were Muslims. No. <laughs> well, well, Father Josh, I don't know how wide our audience is. Yeah, but. Yeah. So, so basically, you have a belief in God, and the question is, why would we need salvation in the first place? So belief in God is the creator of all things. Everything that we have is due to God, who is the first cause of all things. Everything Everything that has been given to us, down to the slightest hair on our head or body, if we don't have any hair left on our head, uh, that is all due to God. Everything that's been given to us without the intervention of the human will, like, what he, are you, are you making the statement that, um, let's say somebody comes along and instead of the USB cord whipping (laughs) TJ, that someone comes along and decks TJ in the eye, probably justly, and... (laughs) So would you say that that comes from God? Would, or is that what you're saying? Like, So that's something that he has. Is that by God, or are we talking about the human will? How does that play in there? Uh, we're talking, so we're kind of talking about a pre-fall state. Okay, okay. A, a before, state before the, okay, before the okay. fall so of man. The before Right, correct. In the garden. Okay, everything um, came from God, obviously. Right, yeah. be- before you have the question of sin come about, because once you admit that there is sin, you're already admitting we need salvation. So let's, let's talk about an idea that we question we don't, we are wondering why we need salvation in the first place. Everything that we're given that's good is due to God. Ultimately, yeah. we owe everything to God, including our own free wills that make choices are originally attributed to God as giving us those wills. So because he gave it to us, we owe it to him? Correct. So he's like an Indian giver. Well, that no, no. That is probably politically incorrect. Yes. No. Uh, the the term to owe you can, somebody. You can send us an email at podcast at <laughs> I don't mean to be offensive, but yeah. like, so what? So is God a, God the kind of God that gives gifts and expects them back? It, it would. It's it like would, I did that when I was a kid. My I gave my dad a toy for Christmas because I wanted him to give it to me. It, if you gave it back to the person who gave you the gift, you would be returning nothing other than what they're already due. Even if it Wait, is so somebody yeah. gives me something and that means they're due it in return? Yes. Wait, no, no, no. see, we got problems with that. I'm not sure that's justice. If somebody gives you something, they don't expect it back. Why would they be due it back? Because they are the ones who it would be attributed to who gave it So there's it no such you. thing as a gift? If I give TJ a, 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 a gift for his birthday, I am somehow due that gift back? If you use that gift to harm the person, for instance, and then the person demands restitution for the harm that you gave them, and you gave them only what they've already given you back, do you think they're going to consider that as good restitution? No, but that's not the statement you made. The statement you made was that if I receive a gift, then the person who gave it to me is due that gift in return. Not, not that they aren't giving you a gift that you can't keep. But rather that if you ever intended to pay a person back, to pay them back with the own gift. What if I don't intend to pay them back? Can I, what if somebody gives me a gift and I don't intend to pay them back? Can I, can I interject here, though? Sure. Okay, so it seems like uh, if I were to give someone a gift, right, 
I mean, the, the, first of all, there's kind of a question here of do I have a relationship with this person in the first place? So let's assume I do have a relationship with this person, some kind of relationship, at least I know them. I give them a gift. Now, are they a, there's no obligation or expectation that they give me something in return, but at the same time, there is something else going on. I don't know how to exactly describe it, but there is something to the effect of like, I appreciate that you gave me the gift, right? So there's already a relationship between the two people. There, There's not a... I don't know if there's a... I wouldn't See, say, I think, I think when something... you start describing it this way, you start describing like a, a relationship that is not a godly relationship. So like I have currently, because she, I can say this because she'll get it before this podcast gets out, right? So for my niece's birthday, I bought her a, a Minnie Mouse watch, right? So Mickey Mouse, but, but Minnie, right? A little pink Minnie Mouse watch, right? And I'm going to give that to her for her birthday when I see her. She doesn't owe me anything. She doesn't even owe me thanks as a result of that. If, no, 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 no. If no. she gives that to me, she's now giving me a gift that I'm not due. No, no, no. So the question of being due something isn't something that the person has to pay back for. If, if it was intended as a gift, then it's intended to be kept as a gift, correct? Right. The question, what I'm talking about due, and we're kind of maybe equivocating on what the term due means, is that that property given to you if you returned it to the person, you're only restoring what is properly theirs in the first place. You're only restoring... So- see, I wouldn't even say that. It's not properly theirs. Like, if she gives me back this watch, it's not like it was mine. I gave it to her. Now, if she gives me back this watch, she's not giving me anything I didn't already have before. Exactly. Right? But that doesn't mean it's properly mine. Now, if you paid... So, let's say, by analogy, in a relationship... And somebody gives you a bunch of gifts, right? And at the end of this relationship, you return the gifts to the person. Would that person say that they had gained from the relationship? Or would they have been returned to equal just on the question of the gifts? Uh, I'm not sure I understand your question. If you're in a relationship, and in the process of that relationship, gifts are exchanged. Okay. That relationship comes to a conclusion... Now, so you're talking about like a romantic relationship? Sure, okay. whatever, whatever type of relationship you want to okay. think of. Now, let's say at the end of that relationship, the gifts that were given are given back to both of the parties who exchanged the gifts. Okay, right? why would that happen, though? Uh, sometimes in an amiable end of a romantic relationship, yeah. that sometimes happens. Okay. So it's just a but, hypothetical. I mean, I don't think that's required. I think even if no, somebody's... No, it's not, it's not so required. Like, that's not the point. Even somebody who's getting, you know, has gotten engaged... Right, so maybe, uh, so let's say something happens and they break off the engagement, and so maybe the woman gives back that ring, the engagement ring. Maybe she doesn't. But here's the thing: when I give somebody a gift, I don't expect it back. That's like that's the risk we take, right? The risk we take is that I'm putting my heart out there and I'm giving you this. Now, would you now cons- you have it and you can do with it what you will? Now, if you take if the, your fiance, for instance, took that gift and ran, yeah. Would you consider that there would be at least, maybe it's slight, but at least some loss that has occurred? Would, uh, yes, but the loss wouldn't be financial. The gift was still just a gift. So you would say there would be no financial loss when you lost? There would be an emotional loss, no question. 
Now, what was the ring it's given not a, it's for? Not a fin- How could it be the financial loss? I already was giving the gift away. Here's the thing. I haven't had this happen to me with an, an engagement ring, but I've had this kind <laughs> of thing happen to me um, where I've given something to somebody, and they kind of run with it. It's like, well, okay. You know? But the thing is, I gave that to them. Like, that was theirs. I gave it to them to do with it what they will. That's what, like, a couple does. Like, I put my heart in your hands. You can do with it whatever you want to. If you crush it, I gave it to you. That was yours to crush. So you don't say that the person could harm you with the gift that they've received? Absolutely they can harm you, but it's not like a financial harm, right? So the harm is not in the fact that you've taken something from me that wasn't yours. Your harm is that I gave you something that you, you really should have taken care of, right? If you were going to express love, you would have taken care of it. And when they don't take care of it, have they wronged anybody in any way whatsoever, be it economic, emotional, whatsoever? I think that probably depends on the gift. Um, when we talk about more serious gifts, like the heart, I give you my heart, yes. Okay. In, so, the, in, the, in the case of a financial gift, like, listen, I give somebody a, a ring $20. off. Maybe right? be straight up. The problem is, the, problem is the, the betrayal that people feel is in the heart. The money thing, I mean, that's fine. That might be a difficult, a hardship. But the money thing is just, it's just money. But the, the hardship's hardship, in the heart. The hardship, nonetheless, be it ever so slight, be it financial or so forth, when a person gives a gift and the person misuses the gift that they have been given, then even if it is slight, they have wronged the person who has given them the gift. I don't want to go way off track here, but this seems like it might be connected also to John Paul's idea of uh, love. Well, no, 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 no. Leave him out of it. All right. <laughs> it gets too complicated. Okay. Talking about Ansel. We have barely it jumped depends, off the first de- premise. I know, I know, no, no, but it, it really <laughs> depends on the gift. There are some gifts that you give to somebody. It's like, so I'm looking on my counter. I've got six bottles of wine or something sitting there. And let's say I give TJ a bottle of wine. And he looks at me and he says, thank you for this gift. He opens the bottle and pours it down the sink. <laughs> right? It'd be very un TJ. But I would not do that. You know, but let's say he did that, right? The wrong is not in the abuse of the gift. He was intentionally insulting me, right? I, I, I mean, the bottle of wine, like, that's fine, whatever it costs, 15 bucks or something like that. Okay. But could he have done. Could he have done the insult without the action of how he dealt with the gift? The intention oh, yeah, was. I think so, yeah. The intention was expressed with the manner in which he handled the gift. Yeah, but gift. the gift was his. Like, that's now his property. He can do with it what he wants to. Like, maybe you could argue that he's being wasteful, and so therefore he's committing a sin. But let's say that, you know, he now takes that bottle of wine and gives it to somebody else as a gift instead of enjoying it himself, right? Um, now he's not being wasteful, but he's kind of... The whole purpose was I was giving him a gift, and so I wanted him to use it. But that doesn't really matter. That's the whole idea of a gift. Once it's given, it's out of my control. I cede that control. I don't have authority over it anymore. Now, let's say a situation where, let's try and tie it back to the theological question, where God gives us a gift for a specific use. Namely, that everything that God gives us, would you agree everything God gives us is for the end of love and service to God. Yes, but that's because that is good for us, not because it's good for God. Does God consider the goodness in which he gives on account of us or on account of his own goodness? 
He gives because of his goodness. Correct. So he does it on account of himself, not on account of us. We, we gain it by grace. So therefore, the things that we are given by God are due to his service, are due to him as an end, correct? No. No. That, that, that's the thing. I mean, I, I think if, if we desire, if we desire, listen, I do believe that everything that we've gotten from God is due to him. But I don't. The way that you're approaching it, I don't agree with. Right. Um, so, how would you come to that conclusion that everything we're given is due to God? I think because because God proposes to us in complete freedom, the possibility of being completely, totally, and utterly fulfilled in happiness. Right. And so He gives these gifts to us, and He proposes, if you would be happy. This is how you are to use these gifts. And they redound then to God for his glory, right? But in our complete and utter freedom, we can also decide to take those gifts and to flush them down the toilet. Now, when he gives us those gifts and they're flushed down the toilet, is God just when he punishes us for doing so? Uh, Sure, although I'm not even sure that I would say he's punishing us. What would you say he's doing? I would say he's letting us punish ourselves. Now, is he in control of the natural laws that govern this yes, punishment? created them himself. So, in a sense, he is causing us to be punished. Uh, in a sense, but in the same sense that you can say, um, me allowing someone to make a mistake is the same as me causing someone to make a mistake. But is God in absolute control of those natural laws? Uh, yes, but he is not. He has ceded control of your will to you. But, as a gift. But the consequence, which is a product of the natural law, God can suspend the natural law, correct? He could. I, to my knowledge, the only time he's done that is, we call that a miracle. Correct. Right, yeah. But he refrains, or at least theoretically, refrains from such miracles that result in our punishment, and hence is directly responsible for our punishment. With the combination of our will, of course, but that he causes these natural laws, these laws that govern all reality, to result in an unpleasant consequence for those who use their will against him. I think there's a whole spectrum of theologians that would be very uncomfortable making a statement like that. But would you? Uh... I'm not as uncomfortable with it. <laughs> All right. All right. So I think we've, we, I, so, I think we so, can okay. at least agree we've on taken, this first friends, We've premise. taken a little bit of an esoteric detour. <laughs> and I use the word esoteric, I think, correctly in this matter. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm sorry. Get back to the argument. Because this is the argument that blows people's mind. Okay. So the first premise. Because a normal person would not have asked you the questions. Correct. Asking you, so. The first premise is everything that we're given is due to God. God. That basically just means that God is responsible for everything that we're given. So God is due. That everything that we have, he's given to us. Correct. Okay. God, at, God least, is, at least as a first cause. Correct. Correct. Now, since everything that we have is due to God in a double sense, because the word due actually means both those things, uh, due yeah. in the sense of need to be attributed back and simply responsible for correct since everything is due to god then when we use our wills or the things that are given to us in a manner not in accord with god's will when we use something against god's will we could never repay that debt in itself because everything we have is already due to god in the first place 
So when we misuse something that's due to God, we can't repay it back because everything we have is already a gift from God. It's not something that we ourselves can produce to give back to him. I'll give you that. Now, there's a, another consequence to that. So this is already established. That I mean, Jesus we, says something about that, right? Yes, he says correct. it's like it's, a, it's in, the unprofitable servant, right? Yeah. So the servant who does all of his work, yeah. at the right. end, he's still unprofitable, right? Because right? everything he was doing, he was already supposed yeah, to be doing. You were already right. supposed to do yeah. that. Right. You should say, oh, I'm That's like unprofitable my servant. Uncle, my uncle owns all these businesses. He doesn't pay people bonuses. Now, he'll pay them very good salaries, but he doesn't pay bonuses. His whole thing is... I'm already paying you to do this. Right. Why would I give you a bonus? <laughs> right. Right? I've paid you to do this job. Right. No. Yeah, so e- everything we have is due to God. We are supposed to serve God with everything we have. So when we fail in the slightest aspect of how we're supposed to serve God, we could never repay that back because we are already supposed to be servants in absolutely every last thing that we have. Okay. So we could never repay God in that sense. So we're already doomed and damned in that <laughs> in that aspect. But there's yet another consequence that even furthers this uh, argument that we are doomed and damned. And that is the dignity of the one who is wronged, or the dignity of the one that we at least attempt to wrong. So let's say we cut down a tree without purpose and we waste the environment in that in that aspect. We don't use it for anything productive, we simply light the destruction, cut down a tree. We'll probably do some punishment in the whole realm of justice, but a slight punishment because a tree doesn't have the dignity of something higher than it. Let's say we harm a dog or a cat. The dignity of the thing we harmed is slightly higher. Now harm a human, you harm something even more serious. Uh, The punishment that is due to you is far greater than if you harmed a dog and even far greater than if you harmed a tree. Now, God, who in himself is the infinite, the I am who am, God being infinite, his dignity is, li- is likewise infinite. So the slightest wrong done to God, the slightest offense done to him in his order that he ordained for reality, would be in itself, because of the dignity of the one harmed, infinite. So I can harm God. You can't harm him, but you can harm the order which he freely ordains or allows you Is to harm. Is the order he freely ordains do infinite dignity? Yes, because it came from the infinite order. So I'm do infinite dignity, and so is the cat, because they came from that order as well. They came from the order insofar as you're harming God in that aspect. When you're considering them in themselves, they're finite. But when you're considering them in the light of God's plan, they are infinite. Yes, this is why the slightest wrong done to a tree is likewise a sin and an infinite wrong, but considered in itself, like if you're considering temporal punishment or so forth, yeah, okay. it in you. itself I recognize most of you may not understand that, but I'm going to concede <laughs> that to you. So, so when, you wrong, when you do a wrong to God's order, it's an infinite wrong. And so the slightest sin, the slightest wrong to the infinite order is an infinite wrong. And so in that sense can never be repaid because being finite beings, we can only produce a finite set of things and we'd be eternally in hell. And those are all due to God anyway. Right, exactly. Eternally in hell trying to repay this debt. Justice would demand that we repay this debt. The finite cannot satisfy the infinite. Correct. Yeah. So it looks grim. It looks like we are doomed to damnation both because we can't repay God uh, in the sense that everything's due to him. And in the sense that the dignity of he who is wronged is infinite. So we're stuck. 
at least and that's the hell of a Catholic podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding, kidding, kidding. Keep going. So, so it seems we're doomed and stuck. Now, Anselm, Anselm discussing this, trying to bring to light what is in Scripture and make it more clear through uh, an argument through reason. He mentions that, well, this Christ figure, let's start out with the dignity question, this Christ figure is God. Now, God is of infinite dignity, so a wrong done to God is deserved an infinite payment or an infinite punishment. Well, we've already decided a wrong done to one of God's creatures has the same punishment. Yes, yes. So is a wrong done to Christ more or less severe than a wrong done? I mean, so here's the thing. Ultimately, with this, don't we end up by saying you're in the same boat whether you chop down a tree unjustly or whether you crucify Christ on the cross? In some sense, yes. Right, that seems like the problem, one of the problems with the argument. But I think we should continue anyways to see what happens next. So you wrong Christ, who is the infinite good, and by wronging him, he is due an infinite return. Wait, but I would say, though, that if... So the kind of the technical term would be imminent, right? But God is is present in all of his creations, so... Uh, I don't know if I'm going out on a limb here, but like there is something to be said for wronging God in any one of the spectrum of wrongs that we could have, right? Well, so, here, here's a way to. But eliminate. it does still be, it still it does still lead us to the question of you know what's the difference between the crucifixion and chopping down a tree? Here, here's a way to eliminate that objection: uh, is fallen reality, reality that is fallen, is that perfect or imperfect reality? Well, it's imperfect. Is Christ perfect or imperfect? Christ is perfect. Therefore, harming reality in the state of the fallen sense would not be harming Christ, correct? Let me ask you this, just as an aside. You don't have to chew on this right now, but (laughs) if Christ was perfect before the scourging, was he perfect after the scourging? Yes. That's an interesting question. So is his body irrelevant to his perfection? These two natures. I mean, uh, we could talk about that some other time, right? Yeah. Good. You want to chew on it's something? A, it's a good question. <laughs> Just file that. Up, file, <laughs> put put that one in there and see if you can sleep. Yeah. Uh, and Hebrews talks about how Christ is perfected through His obedience. Yes, yes. So that's that would be an interesting question to verge into. So harming reality, harming reality can't be harming Christ for that reason. So Christ being harmed, God being harmed in the person of Christ would be due an infinite reparation. Likewise, Christ being perfectly just, and I assume you would all agree that Christ was perfectly just, correct? I think so. Otherwise, we have to redefine justice, right? right? Christ being perfectly just, having never sinned, is due no punishment himself. So being being given any punishment by anybody would never be able to be repaid because of the Just fact like I can't repay stepping on the twig in the Correct, forest. correct. Yeah. So you see a sort of chiastic pattern here going on that you often see in Scripture, too. You have... Like you can't use that word. Nobody knows what... Well, you, you, have this, you have this sort of reflection. You have this reflection between fallen man and Christ crucified. You have the infinite wrong done to God by us, and you have Christ receiving the infinite wrong because of his dignity. 
you have the wrong that can never be repaid to God by us, and you have Christ receiving the wrong that can never be repaid to him. So Anselm basically says, in this sense, Christ then is able to cancel out the debt because two infinites cancel out each other. Why did he have to suffer? In what way do you mean? Well, why did he have to suffer, though? Because, I mean, if I already owed God, if I already owed God infinite sort of reparation that I can't repay because I stepped on a twig in the forest, then why, why did he have to, we're just going to add. So after I stepped on the twig in the forest, there was no increased debt after anything else that happened, right? And so then Christ comes and we do stuff to him. And he receives well, a debt, and, and so, so the two debts well, cancel each other out. How does he out. receive the debt? It, I'm out again. I'm just an observer, but it seems like <laughs> he already had the debt. No, it seems like in some strange way the the suffering itself is what bridged the gap. Does yes. That, does that? Yes. Yes. Compute. The suffering mean, itself is what bridged what gap? The the gap that was created by stepping on the twig, so to speak. By by sinning in any manner whatsoever, we owed a debt to God. Christ himself bore the debt. So there was an infinite debt to God because Christ had a human nature, and he suffered in his human nature. He paid that debt to God because Correct. by him suffering at all, it was an infinite offense. Correct. Right? So two offenses make everything okay. Right. So God was offended, and then God was offended again, and somehow that makes it all okay. Rather, God. Well, no, God chose. God chose this. Well, if He was going to choose, why did He choose it this way? He did. I don't know why. So we're just left with. We can, oh no no no, 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 no. We can no, talk that, about then it. The whole point of Anselm's argument's gone. Teaching. No, 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 no. Okay. No, 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 no. The 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 argument. Well, that's not what gone I there. say. I'm not promoting this argument. I, I have to turn it to Ben again. All right. Mind you, it's a saint here, so easily diminishing. <laughs> I'm but, not diminishing. But let's. I'm uh, curious. Let, let's 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 leave that aside. So. Why Christ suffered so much, that certainly is an open question. That that cannot be well, answered by any it. offense, right? All you got to do is look at him and judge him yes, eternally. Yes, yes, So it didn't have to be any physical suffering. Right, right. Well, he would have had to have borne some suffering him, himself, be it emotional. Yeah, it could know, have been like emotional. The, the people that right? write about the passion, the mystics and whatever, they all yeah. talk about how the internal suffering right, was worse. Far worse. Right, far worse. Right, right, right. Like the external suffering is just an image, an icon no. of the internal suffering. Right. Because he bore No, Anselm's, yeah. Anselm's argument isn't intended to address whether he even saw it or not is another question altogether. I believe St. Thomas Aquinas addressed this particular question. Was, why did Christ suffer so much? The question is not, not whether Christ suffered so much that Anselm's argument intends to address, but rather how reparation could have been made for our wrongdoing and yet at the same time cancel out the debt. So, yes, I, I agree. A slightest, Anselm's argument doesn't address how a slightest scratch to Christ's arm, for instance, or the slightest emotional tribulation that he suffered at the wrongdoing of others uh, could have been problematic. Okay, so then keep going with your with your argument. So, with Christ being due this infinite retribution, uh, being given back to this infinite debt that's due to Christ, and with Christ also never being able to be repaid it because he's already due no punishment whatsoever, he himself could will to take upon, as payment for that, the debt that we owe. 
And so by taking upon that payment, he cancels out the infinite with the infinite. And so both meets justice by himself taking the punishment and meets mercy by giving us what we were not due. Okay. So I thought I understood the argument, and I, I do. I, it's the same that I remember. Um, talk to me about people that are blown, their minds are blown by this. Talk to me about that. Uh, every now, it was I screwed it all up because I stopped you all along the way <laughs> asking you questions. So like you yeah, no, normally right? normally you don't get these objections because right. most of the people don't even yeah, know no, what the argument is in the first like, place. So what you're saying is that justice and mercy come together in Christ? Yes, yes. In the cross, they, the crossroads, so to speak, of both justice and mercy. What if I were to say to you, I say this all the time, God's justice and God's mercy is the same thing. It always was. It always will be. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it's not like he's got, he doesn't have parts, right? It's not like he's got a bucket of justice and a bucket of mercy. And somebody comes before him and he's like, oh, today we're going to go with the bucket of mercy. And tomorrow we're <laughs> going to go with the bucket of justice, right? Right. It doesn't have buckets. It's God's justice, God's justice is his mercy. What if the whole thing just comes down to linguistics? I don't think it can come down to linguistics. Um, and that is a whole... Well, there's no distinction whole, in God. Whole disti- there, there, there's no difference in God. Correct. So if the difference exists, it exists in us. Well, I don't think the... What is it? God's grace meeting the state of grace versus God's grace meeting the state of sin? There's clearly a difference between justice and mercy in the question of how it could exist in God. So, for instance, God, given that we gave these earlier definitions of what justice and mercy is, God could be... Which, in fairness, I did not agree with. Right? Well, you did, you we changed, no, we changed we, the we changed definition to something And then we changed the whole nation of, notion of a gift. Right, We didn't right, change right. it, but... I don't agree with the notion of the gift. Yeah, yeah, but back to the mercy definition that we did eventually agree on with your qualifications. With those definitions, God can be just to himself, but he can't be merciful to himself. So mercy can't exist truly in the nature of God. Why does God God. have to be just to himself or merciful to himself? No. God doesn't do things to himself. He's just God. It can't be part of his nature if it's not co-temporal with him, or it's not co-eternal. Right. So whatever it is, God's justice and mercy, co-temporal with him, it's just God. There's no parts. Right. So if it can't... God's justice means I'm taking a part of God and calling it his justice. God's mercy means I'm taking a part of God and calling it his mercy. There's no parts in God. If justice could not exist, if justice could exist co-eternally with God, but mercy could not exist co-eternally with God, it's an indication that mercy is not part of God's being, but rather a effect that God has upon us that comes from his nature but is not part of his nature. So since justice can exist with God, God can give each person his due within the Trinity, but God cannot remit something in the Trinity that is not due to the person because of the fact that the Trinity is perfectly just. Mercy is something that can only exist with the existence the is, though, of imperfect God beings. Justice, when God when God when God is just to his people. When we talk about what is due to the people, the only thing that God owes to anyone is what God has decided that he owes. Nothing else. He makes all those rules, right? Yes. So if God says that this is what you get, that's just, period. It's also merciful because you don't deserve it, right? Like, it's the same thing every time. 
I would say it would be a He's grace, just not and merciful, because merciful, souls in hell. Because merciful implies a uh, penalty that is due but remitted. No, grace no, no, I don't agree with that. Just I don't agree gift. that mercy implies a penalty. When we, I mean, Pope Francis talks about mercy all the time. He's not talking about and, penalties. And a lot, and I've heard a lot of people say that, like even creation itself. Is a is a mercy and that an has, act of mercy that has it's nothing giving to do someone with what they penalty. don't uh, what they what they do like not the fact deserve. that you exist you don't deserve that the only thing you know? God owes us is what He has promised us that's it and the only reason He owes it to us is because He promised it not because of us it's because of Himself correct so I'm saying ultimately I mean. I, I appreciate Anselm's argument. We have to study it. It's like a his, very important historical argument. Um, I think when you really apply natural theology, which in fairness had not been fully developed in Anselm's time, right? When you fully apply natural theology to our study of God himself, what we can know by reason, I think his argument becomes unnecessary. And why is that? Because his whole argument is why God can be merciful and just at the same time. But I think it collapses on itself when you just say God's mercy is God's justice. It's the same thing. We make the distinction. So would you say, for instance, to a Muslim that it's perfectly rational to say God would wave his hand, or figuratively speaking, and simply forgive us our debts that God was being both just and merciful? When I say... I'm, I'm not sure I understood your question. So let's say Christ never occurred, right? Okay. Uh, and God forgave us our sins without Christ. Would you say that that is reckoned logically? I'm not talking about natural theology and principles of faith that we might take on faith, but just with reason alone, would you say it is rational for God to forgive our debts without something like a sacrificial lamb? I think, yes, I do think it's logical. Okay, I, I do not. I think he could have chosen to do it any way he wanted to. Right? Because the I only thing that God's do, the only thing, excuse me, the only thing that God owes us is what he decides to give us. And I, I suppose perhaps our disagreement arises from what we mean by mercy and justice. Because under my understanding of what mercy is, it's being given, giving somebody something that they are not due and where they are instead due a punishment. But like a, a, a corporal work of mercy, right? I'm talking about a corporal work of mercy, right? I'm going to feed the hungry. Is the person who's hungry due starvation? In a sense, yes. Well, now, now this not his fault? It doesn't, it doesn't sound politically correct, I'm sure, but all of us, all of us, because of our fallen state, all of us are not due any life all of us are due death and destruction. Yeah, that comes from God, though. But in terms yes. of the distribution of, of the earth's goods... So, so right. So distributing those goods to other people... I mean, if God wants to bring a famine on the land, that's his business. He can do that. Right. right. And he has in the past. Right. And God's hand is seen in nature. So when we act in such a manner, we are remitting something that we are all due, namely death. We are remitting it for a shorter period of time and, in some sense being an act of mercy through God's grace. So yes, I, I can see how that can be a mercy in a fallen world, even under my definition of mercy. So, so g going back to the idea, I think, I think our disagreement arises here and why I think this is a, an extremely powerful apologetic against the Muslims um, in the idea 
that we have a differing definition on what justice and mercy is. Under my definition, what I mean when I refer to mercy, that is, mercy is remitting a punishment that's due, holding back on a punishment that's due. While justice means giving somebody their due, which also obviously, if it includes anything that they're due, it also includes a punishment. So there is clearly, in my mind at least, under those definitions, a clear contradiction for God to refrain from punishing somebody without giving the, giving a punishment its due. So on that definition, I think Anselm's argument is necessary to rationally justify justice and mercy. But I can understand if you're talking about something different than I am on those terms, Okay, how you could disagree with to, Anselm's To be argument. fair, just as an observer, pr- observer, prima facie, just like looking at this argument from the outside, it seems like a linguistic problem. I, I'm not getting into the details, but just the way you're talking about it seems like just the fact possibly, like it seems like the reason why you're disagreeing is because you're talking about it in different ways. And so this lesson, definitions of terms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I do not agree with you, TJ. Okay. Uh, well, that's just I, I, yeah. like I said. I'm not. I'm not trying to be an expert on it. No, no, that's okay. It's okay. But I'm just trying to see what what might people hear when they're listening to it. When I'm listening to it, it seems that's what it seems like. Well, we will. Uh, yeah. This podcast has now reached its end. Um, we haven't kind of finished discussing this, uh, but it, I, I hope that you found it interesting. If you didn't and you turned it off, then you're not listening to this anyway. Uh, but, um, you know, the the question of... I think we can all definitely agree that the question of Christ coming into the world, becoming man, suffering in the way that we suffer, but to a greater degree. Like, trying to understand why that happened, why that had to happen, what meaning it has. I think for Catholics, we tend to not think about it too much. Yeah, I, You know, yeah. it's like even the yeah. passion, like the way that our liturgical cycle works, you only hear this story. Twice what? a year. I mean, if you're, if you're coming to Sunday Mass only, you only hear it once a year. If you're coming to daily mass, you hear it three times a year, right? You'll hear part of it on the exaltation of the cross. You'll hear uh, part of it at the Our Lady of Sorrows, so four times. Part of it, Our Lady of Sorrows, and then you'll hear one of the Gospels on... Good Friday, Passion One Sunday. of the Gospels on uh, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Okay. And then Gospel of John on uh, Good Friday. Um, but most people only hear the whole Gospel one time a year. It's like half of the Gospels is the story of the Passion and the Resurrection. Half the oh, Gospels. Yeah. The whole like point of the up, Gospels, You really, add up the right? whole thing, it's like half of the half of the, the pages is there, right? It is our faith, yeah. And, and we spend so much time, like you hear about the healing of the blind men like seven times yeah. in the cycle of Sundays, and you hear about the Passion only once. Um, and I, I mean, I'm not, I don't know what it used to be like, I'm not a liturgical historian, but the fact is, like, why God came to earth, suffered, and died for us, like, this is a major point. Like, thinking about it, trying to understand it, this is a good thing. It's a good thing for meditation. Um, and there's no shortage of people who have, t- who have written about this. Like, Anselm's, imp- Anselm's argument, whether you agree with it, whether you disagree with it, whatever, um, is still one that uh, at least any serious student of theology is required not just to know, but to master Right, 
um, he had a very, very unique, very rational um, and very useful way of thinking about the whole thing. And the challenges that I was offering to this theory are challenges that I've read. It's not like, I mean, some of them have become my own challenges, but challenges that I've read, and especially sort of more modern theology. But, um, I mean, the fact is, like St. Anselm, who is a saint, right, dedicated his life to trying to understand these things. Um, and we owe his doctrine, his opinion, a very, very serious look and very serious understanding. Not that all of you are listening to this have to understand it, um, but this question is a good question and definitely something that uh, is worthy of your attention, especially in Lent. You're looking for something to try to do in Lent, you know, really be thinking about um, why it is that this all happened the way it did. You know, God doesn't do anything by accident, right? It's not like, it's not like life doesn't just happen. Remember, Jesus Christ said, no one does this to me. I choose it of my own accord, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wasn't a victim. He was a victim in a certain sense, but he's a victim of himself, right? He wasn't a victim of his circumstances. He chose the path that he walked. Um, that's a fascinating thing. We don't think about it that often, um, but it is a fascinating thing and something that affects our daily Christian life. So at any rate, if you uh, have any questions, comments, hell of a Catholic podcast, podcast at gtcatholic.org. And uh, we apologize if this was a little too heavy for you. I found it very interesting. TJ has fallen asleep several times. Oh, hey, <laughs> hey, That's hey, what he does. Hey. Uh, a special and, edition right here. That's exactly. Uh, and thank you and God bless.